Tonight I'd like to talk about what we encounter as we navigate our way through this inner terrain of our hearts, through the terrain of our metta practice, and namely uh, what we encounter in terms of the hindrances. And also what understandings and skills we can make use of that will make our navigation through this terrain more easeful for us, a place where as we navigate the terrain, we can learn what, what there is inside, what is unfolding. We can learn how to relate to it in a skillful way. But first, before I go into the hindrances, I want to give some overview of our practice. Generally, whatever spiritual journey we're on, it involves a process of opening. And usually... Um, If I take my own life for an example, when I first got on the path, I wanted to open to everything that was beautiful, the results of a path of practice. I wanted to open to the beauty in myself, in my own heart, and the beauty in others. And it took me just a little while to realize that in order to open in this kind of wanting, wanting in a wholesome way to open to the beauty of life, to the beauty of life within me, to the beauty of life in others, I had to open to what was difficult also. I couldn't just say, I want to open, but I only want to open to what's easeful to open to, what's, uh, what is beautiful to open to. Part of the path of the spiritual journey, a big part of it is being able to open to what is difficult. So in order to open our hearts to rediscover or to uncover that natural, deep tendency to give our love, to give our care, to give our goodwill, this is what we're doing here. It takes an enormous, noble effort to do that. And all of you, each one of you, have that noble nobility inside of you. And this is why you're here. You have this noble dedication that requires us to open to the path fully without leaving anything out, without ignoring, without going into ignorance again about what we're opening to. Opening to tendencies of ill will, to tendencies of fear, of clinging, of doubt. This is all part of our path, and this too is natural. It's not a mistake. We're not doing anything wrong because we're opening to this. There was a a quote by Anais Nin that many years ago had a great impact on me. And what happened was that those words really matched a deep voice I had inside, but I hadn't recognized yet. And these were the words... I want to unfold. Let no place inside me remain closed. For where I am closed, there I am a lie. Meaning to say, there, I'm not knowing that place of my heart completely. In that place where I'm not really unfolding, I'm deceiving myself. And in the quest to... um, understand greed, hatred, and delusion, and really 
uproot all of those, it became very necessary for me to see where I was deceiving myself, where things were covered up that I wasn't allowing the unfoldment of. So, as you all know, and I've, all of us know on the path, all of us teachers, and we are yogis also, like you, we know that it takes a delicate strength to be able to open to all of this, to be able to trust the process. And trusting the process means that we don't have to look at the whole path. Really, trusting the process means that we take one moment at a time. We're present one moment at a time with whatever is arising in that moment, not taking it any further, similar to our Vipassana path. We need to be patient. This is um, what the Buddha called the highest virtue. Patience is the highest virtue. No need to push or to strive. Just allow that natural unfolding to take place. I'm just remembering back just now to a time when um, uh, one of my um, partners in life, the father of my children, uh, I wanted him so much to be on the path, you know, and it just, this path that I'm on, it just wasn't his path. And so um, I was kind of pushing, and in that case, pushing him and pulling um, sort of what he said in what he said to me, don't pull my petals. I'm unfolding as I should, one petal at a time. And it gave me a great teaching to realize that that's what's happening, too, in my own heart. So I couldn't just apply it to him. So allowing that unfolding one petal at a time, one moment at a time, really necessary for us having that kind of spiritual patience. We learn that the best way to do our metta practice is just take this phrase, that's all, if we're doing just this phrase, and then the next phrase, or if we're doing the reflection on a person, that's all we're doing, just that time, not those moments, just that reflection. If we happen to be with a a, a pleasant state in the body or a feeling of open-heartedness in the body, mind, heart. That's all we're with in the moment. So when we can bring it to that level of moment to moment, it can really, really help us in our practice. It makes it a lot easier to do the practice. It's so difficult to bear those parts of ourselves that the practice unfolds to where um, we've been folded in upon ourselves for a while to a particular feeling, a particular maybe unwholesome state of mind, one, one of the hindrances. And when it opens up, it becomes another... Um, we, we put another layer of constriction over that, or we add another moment of aversion to that moment of aversion. And... To open to these unkind parts of ourselves takes metta. It takes a lot of kindness to be able to do that. So as one of the teachers said today or yesterday, I can't remember when, is that when we are experiencing uh, 
any one of these hindrances, different versions of greed, of hatred, for example, can we just bring some kindness to it in general? As Mark Twain says so simply and eloquently, self-knowledge is not always good news when we see what, what is there in the folded parts of our hearts and minds. Another um, quote that I was very touched by, uh, by Anais Nin, was this one about being closed and tight in a bud. She said this one beautiful line, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to open. And so I find that it's true a lot with my own practice and with people that I encounter on the path that we take the risk to do things like this, to come to a retreat where it's not as um, blissful as we thought it might be. It takes a lot more courage and work than we thought it might take. But we're so willing to do that because somewhere underneath, somewhere calling to us is this opening of all the places that are unopened. And there's this calling to us of uh, being able to uh, know ourselves completely, to know that it's so painful to just have this constriction that we always feel. And it's worth it to feel the pain of opening. I always say to myself, it's pain going, it's not pain coming. You know, when I feel the opening of something that's really difficult to see. As with any practice that allows and empowers us, like this practice, to see deeply, and especially supported by the container of stillness and silence, and more so because the aim of our practice is to develop kindness towards others, towards ourselves, towards every moment of whatever is coming up. Because of this gentleness and this kindness and this friendliness that we're developing, there is kind of a a very safe container, an inner container, you might say, and an outer container that's being developed so that these places can be exposed. And there's, there's kind of some deep knowledge that knows that there's a possibility, there's the greatest possibility with these inner and outer conditions to meet that place with another moment of kindness. And so easily exposed is striving, the way we strive to have some results in our practice, the way fear, fear sometimes of love itself comes up, fear of the experience of true love, fear of not being loved, fear of not being able to love, all of these different fears around metta itself. Jealousy, a very deep grief can come up. Pity, despair, longing, different forms of ill will, doubt, of course, and a lot of self-hatred can be seen. So in the beginning days, it's common to get overwhelmed by all of these. And I'll talk about sloth and torpor more later, but it's one of the reasons why sloth and torpor and restlessness do come up because we can kind of get overwhelmed.
by seeing all of these hindrances arise. So how to work with these hindrances specifically and skillfully so that we can continue to energize our metta practice, um, understanding the hindrances in relationship to metta is a little different than understanding the hindrances in relationship to vipassana. So how can we continue to energize the metta without being overwhelmed by the hindrances that come up? And also, what kinds of general attitudes and aspirations can we have that will feed into the development of our practice, the strengthening of our metta practice, so that our spiritual growth and our deep maturing on our spiritual path can happen. I'm remembering some years ago when I went on a retreat to Burma, and um, the teacher there uh, has been a teacher of mine for a long time, and it was a time when uh, I really thought, well, now the children are okay, well, at least as far as I know, they're okay, and I can do something that was really was an aspiration of mine for a long time, and that was to ordain as a nun. Here I was in my mid-50s, and I thought, well, this is the time to do it. So I went in um, Sayadaw Upandita, this, this teacher monk, was a little bit perplexed that he saw me ordaining as a nun at this age, you know, and he knew I wasn't going to be forever, although he tried to talk me into it. That's his job, to talk us into doing it permanently. Um, But he said, well, why are you here? Why are you doing this? And the thing that came out of my mouth was, because I want to clean my heart. And it was because that I saw more and more deeply how these tendencies, these uh, tendencies of aversion, even though sometimes they're not always so intense, they can be very, very wispy sometimes, these tendencies of aversion and attachment were just more and more clearly seen along the path of practice. Sometimes I would ask uh, one of my other teachers, Munindra, Anagarika Munindra, he's passed away already, how come as I go along on the path I see more and more like stains of my heart, more and more? It's, he says, oh, because you're seeing more clearly. It's like a cloth when it's really dirty. You can't see really clearly what's going on. But when it gets cleaner and cleaner and the cloth gets uh, kind of, you know, more and more, less and less stained and more and more white, you can see more clearly what's going on. So that was my aspiration, to really clean my heart. And doing it by really making a strong aspiration of renunciation and um, all of those things that come, you know, shaving the head and just having few things to wear and um, taking more precepts, etc. Before I got there to that particular retreat, I was really inspired by um, a Native American Indian story. And it was very simple, but it really inspired me about cleaning my heart. And so I want to tell you this story, which inspired me to look more deeply and to allow those tendencies of the mind and heart to be known without fear, just to allow them to unfold. 
So this story takes place during a season of great hardship and loss. And an old woman sat with her grandson. And her, uh, with her grandson in front of her, she said, I feel like I have two wolves fighting in my heart. And one wolf is vengeful and impatient and not nice, basically, angry. And the other one is very compassionate and patient and kind. And the grandson said, who will win, O grandmother, who will win? And the grandmother responded, the one I feed, the one I feed. And it got me to looking at, you know, what am I feeding? What tendencies of my own life, of my own heart, am I feeding? What habit patterns? Through acting them out, of course, by, our, by my words, by my deeds. That's the, the most intense way, the most um, you know, deep karmic footprint that we make when we act out those unwholesome tendencies. Also by struggling with them in a way that adds more layers of pain, by fighting, by, by maybe having resistance or aversion to them. Or maybe the struggle entails turning around and ignoring them and running after what is pleasant so I don't have to face them, which is another layer of pain, that layer of clinging to something. Or maybe it's by believing old stories about myself or about others that are no longer true. You know, I call them for myself the empty echoes of the mind. Just those words that say, you're not good enough. You know, you'll, you'll never be able to fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, for me. And now they, they can be noticed more as empty echoes. They're not believed so readily. Uh, and so what are they? Um, what are those places that I'm feeding but also to recognize the places that I'm not feeding, where maybe a moment of anger or displeasure will come up, and I know that it's just an empty phenomena in a way. You can see it like that. Or maybe I feel affected by it. Maybe the mind uh, starts racing off with uh, words or the heart beats faster, but still I don't have to act on it. So noticing both the places that we feed uh, that cause us pain and suffering, the the places that we don't feed that really help incline the mind towards what's wholesome, towards what's good and kind in our lives. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of sobering honesty to do this, to be able to look at this. And... It takes a lot of love and trust. Sometimes it takes the trust of, um, with a teacher to be able to point things out, or the trust of our partners, um, sometimes pointing it out in a kind way and sometimes in a not-so-nice way. But um, if we can take it impersonally, it, it really helps. I remember just as a... Um, Uh, a way of honesty. I remember one time with my partner and husband, Steve, 
he just said, very straightforward, he's just a very straightforward person, he said, you complain too much. And I said, oh, of course I said, oh, no, I don't, and I fought it a little bit. But then I, I reflected on it, and I said, what, what are the ways that I could do that? And I really just watched that place of pushing back, push back on something. It may be very slight. You know, it may be about, oh, this, um, this food is too cold, or this is not uh, a nice place to sit, or something like that. But just being able to honestly take a look at our tendencies and not avoid them is a real big help. Honesty, courage, the willingness to do it, of course. It takes sometimes a teacher to point it out. So of the five hindrances, uh, I'll talk about the near enemy attachment and the far enemy, which is ill will or aversion. I'll talk about those more. And the others... um, doubt, restlessness, and sloth and torpor. I'll touch upon those, but a lot of those can be um, responded to by when you meet with a teacher, one of us, or uh, questions in the hall. So what about attachment? Sometimes it's referred to as clinging. Clinging. It's called the near enemy because it has similar tendencies to loving-kindness. It can seem like loving-kindness because we can get closer to that person or to the experience. It may feel like loving-kindness. It may feel like metta because metta sees the, the good of a person or it can see the good of a, of a situation that includes people, of course. It sees the good of something. And, of course, in the good is that pleasant aspect um, but the difficulty is with, uh, with this attachment or clinging, that attachment clings to that pleasant aspect of the good. So we may, for example, we may fall in love and see the goodness of a person, of course. That's what stands out the most in the honeymoon phase of our relationship. We see the goodness of that person. And there's a lot of pleasant feeling around that, uh, around that connection of seeing the goodness in that person. And what happens is attachment uh, clings to that pleasant feeling that is, comes about because of the contact with our noticing the good of that person. So it's not really clinging to that person per se, but it's clinging to the pleasant feeling we get around noticing the good of that person. So there's, there is a subtle difference, but it can actually be a big difference there. Metta doesn't get attached. It can see the good in a person. It can realize the good of a person. It can even feel the pleasant feeling that comes with that contact. But it, attachment isn't part of the process there. Metta has actually a relinquishing aspect. Um, it doesn't hold on. For example, in our metta practice, what happens with metta is that we give goodwill. We're, we're actually developing the capacity to give. And what we're giving is goodwill. 
It's a um, giving of the heart. It's a generosity of the heart. So sometimes when we say, when we refer to the phrases as wishes, you know, we want the wishes to come true, usually. Sometimes it's better to think of these as just offerings, and sometimes we've talked about them as blessings. You know, when you give a blessing, you just give a blessing. You don't expect anything in return. So this is what metta is. It gives that blessing of goodwill without any expectation for the outcome, no matter what that wish is saying. So we have to be careful around that. We have to really understand that whatever we say, it doesn't matter, all of those, all of those phrases. Sometimes with, with some of you, you've said to me, it has to be more specific in order for you to really feel it, and that's okay. But when it gets to the point where we're feeling like it's so specific that we're developing an attachment to the result, then some clinging is creeping in. So if we just have a sense with each offering of our phrase that it's just offering our goodwill, and whether it's received, whether it's acknowledged, whether people even know that it's happening, whether, uh, of course, it comes true or not, that part is not our business. Our business is just to give. It's just to give that goodwill. When I was doing metta practice um, for a long while, it was an an intensive retreat, Um, there was this one monk, uh, his name at that time was Udamika, and now it's Thamanaja. Some of you may know him, so I just want you to know the connection. And he, um, he was assigned to tell me stories every other day of metta. And the other day that I reported to the teacher, that I had to report my metta practice. But then on the other day, because I reported every day, I just listened to his metta stories. And it was a way, because he was learning English, it was a way that um, I was told he was learning English, so it was a way he could practice his English. And so he told me these stories, which I don't remember one bit of them. I kind of remember a little bit. And... um, he just said all these words, which I didn't understand the pronunciation sometimes, you know, of his Burmese, English. But all I knew was that he was giving his goodwill. And that is so strong in my heart that, you know, every time I see him when I go to Burma, I just have, he's like one of my favorite next to my, you know, my main preceptor, my, he's my teacher, you know, because he showed me his kindness. I didn't have any understanding of what he was saying. He just said these words, you know, and told these stories and smiled. And I would say, yes, thank you, Bhante. Thank you, Venerable Sir. And um, it impacted my heart. And so that all that to say that in a way, if you can really believe that it doesn't, if, if you're words are general or they're precise, specific. Um, Just that it carries your goodwill is really the main thing that matters. And if if we understand that, that's what I meant about when we understand what that, what our practice means and where it's coming from, if we have some understanding about it, 
then we can understand uh, where, where we're coming from, where we really are trying to incline the mind so that it comes from deep, a deep place of kindness. That's what we're offering. Then attachment doesn't have to come in the way. But when attachment does come, um, it's good to recognize it as soon as you can. Sometimes it has come for me because I've, you know, I have grown children and of course I want them to do well and I want them to be on a path that gives them happiness and peace. Of course I want that. But sometimes, as you all who are parents or grandparents, uncles and aunts, know that it can get really frustrating. And so that kind of frustration can come up when I I know when I say, may you please find your way easily, (laughs) you know, and I'll know I'll put that little word in, please, or I'll have that little "Mm," about it. And that frustration uh, that's there is hiding some attachment sometimes. Or sometimes I really know that attachment is there. Or sometimes I've heard people say coming into a retreat, oh, one of their metaphrases is, may I lose 10 pounds, you know? <laughs> and it's, it's just too specific. You're bound to get some attachment to that. So just know you're going to find the way for you. If you need to get more specific to give you more juice, fine. If you need to be, and find the way where you can recognize where attachment's coming up. But if you need to be more general, find that place for you too. Of course, we have attachment to the result of the phrase. That's why it's really good to understand that what we're doing is we're giving. We're not making a wish that it come true. When we say wishes, it means a wish for their happiness and um, peace like that. So, <clears throat> so attachment can be clinging to the result of the phrase. It can be clinging to some result in the practice. It can also be clinging to the person, wanting the person to change, for example. If, you know, maybe if you're peaceful, um, you will change. And that kind of can be an underlying hidden attachment there. So attachment can be really sticky and not seen so easily. It's said that of the two, the near and the far enemy, attachment is harder because it's more hidden. Aversion is more easily seen. So... When it does come up in your practice, when you're doing all that you can to just offer your love, your care, your compassion, your kindness, and putting your goodwill out there, but still, uh, you know, attachment comes up, it's good with any of these hindrances to, and this is just briefly, to just briefly recognize that it's there. Because, of course, if we don't recognize it, it's still kind of, is like a noose in our nose, pulling us here and there. So briefly, recognize that it's there. So these are three R's that you can remember. First, recognize, and then see if you can just relax around it. It's good to remind yourself to relax all the time, in fact. So recognize what's there, just briefly. You don't have to do a whole Vipassana thing. Um, Relax around it, and then 
just realize, if you can continue and keep realizing, that this is just an impermanent visitor to the mind. Then that kind of realization, that third R, realizing, will deepen into some wisdom where when it, can ha- when it happens over and over again, and you're continually just realizing this is just impermanent visitor to the mind, which they all are, all of these hindrances, then it's more liable to just... Uh, we are more liable to just let it go its way. So if it's easy enough to let it go, to let it be in the background, as uh, one of the teachers that I have says, then... Just leave it in the background. I just remember seeing this particular teacher, and um, right away he asked me, where is it, in the foreground or the background? And I said, it's in the background. And he said, leave it there. Just, and that was it. That was, I said, oh, that's easy. Like, I don't have to go pull it into the foreground and play with it and say, what's this all about, you know? because I didn't get nurturing when I was small or whatever. Just forget about all that and leave it in the background and continue with your metta practice. This is one of the basic uh, guidelines with metta. If you can leave it in the background and you don't have to pay attention to it, leave it there and go back to your metta practice and keep doing your metta. So you go back to your phrase or that you use, sometimes it's good to have a phrase that you always come back to, that you know it's like coming back to the breath or coming back to the body. Come back to a phrase that's easy for you. Or you might remember the phrase that you were last on. Or maybe you were on being uh, reflective about a person, knowing the goodness of that person. So you can come back to that. So... If you need to, when there's a lot of attachment, just changing the phrase, you can stay with metta by changing the phrase. Um, you may That particular phrase may bring attachment. Like when you really want somebody to be well, like somebody close to you, and you've got the phrase, may you be healthy and strong, and you realize that there's some attachment to result, to outcome there then it may help to just drop that phrase and find another one for that person. Or whatever the case may be, changing the phrase can be helpful. So that's one way to stay with metta. Another way to stay with metta is to change the person. Oftentimes the easiest person to go back to is oneself, even with attachment. You know, just going, seeing that unwholesome state of mind arise and that's the, um, you know, uh, being protected from that inner uh, unwholesome uh, experience that came up. Just going to metta with that and, and uh, bringing metta just to that experience. So staying with metta when you can. Recognizing what it is, relaxing around it. And uh, just realizing, if you can, it's just impermanent. Sometimes it helps people to see the impersonal nature. Sometimes people say that it helps them to realize, not me, not mine, not who I am, just that uh, 
how it's just arising and passing away. It's not really controllable sometimes. So when the hindrance, any hindrance is overwhelming, then, and it keeps intruding, then stop the metta. When you can't go on with the metta, first try the metta. When you can't go on, then bring in vipassana. And you take uh, your vipassana practice, that bare attention, um, and turn it towards that particular experience, in this case, attachment. And just know what that is. Recognize it. Relax around it. Uh, and realize, again, its impermanent nature. Also with Vipassana, you can do those three R's. Return to metta as soon as the mind is a little more settled. And sometimes it's right away. Sometimes it's a whole sitting. Sometimes it's a whole morning or afternoon, depending how deep and how intense, how long it's been going on. So just... Give it a lot of space, and um, it's okay to be with Vipassana for a little while. Of course, bring it to the attention. If you want to have help, uh, ask for help with it. So that's attachment. And the far enemy is aversion. It says the far enemy, because you can see it from afar, it's generally easier to recognize than attachment. Sometimes in the uh, scriptures, it's likened to a forest fire, and where the forest fire uh, quickly consumes anything in its path. It's said like that in some of the commentaries. And I remember uh, just it was so um, vivid to me when I was in Australia once during a time when there were a lot of forest fires. And we were at this monastery, and um, there, it was burned. A lot of the monastery was burned, except for the, the meditation hall. A lot was burned around it. And so I asked the monk, well, how, what happened? How did you do this? Well, he said, well, all of us really fought it, but it really consumed everything in its path. And I remembered that about aversion, how it just consumes in my own heart, how it's just all-consuming. And it really is hot. It's like a fire in my chest, in my hands. And so um, one of the things he said was that he, he turned around and he saw the fire. And then he turned back around to see where to run. And then he turned back around and the fire was right there, uh, biting up at his robes. It was so fast. It's so quick. And this is how aversion is. It can go so quick into other areas of other unwholesome states of mind, attachment, or even more into aversion, rage and um, cruelty, the, uh, the direct opposite of compassion. So <clears throat> sometimes it's outflowing, like anger, hot-headedness, and cruelty. Sometimes it's subtle, like um, irritation or impatience, um, or it could be frustration, subtleties like that. Sometimes ill will can be subtle. Cynicism can be subtle. One time I didn't know for a long time what was going on, and I realized, ah, oh, that was cynicism 
a kind of cruelty to my own mind, my own heart. Sometimes it's held in like despair or the kind of that part of fear that's held in or disappointment, sometimes a quiet desperation. So in a brief moment again, just like in attachment to um, recognize that it's there as soon as you can, the moment that it comes up, if you can, to recognize it without getting lost in the story. And this is really an important part about both attachment and fear and our metta practice. Be careful not to get caught in the story because it will just bring about more fear, more attachment, more aversion. Be willing to just let go of the story right away. I remember once in, again in doing my practice where I was walking along and um, doing metta. And um, then these stories just kept coming about a recent situation. And I um, it's like it just couldn't let go. And I just kept, oh, yes, but she said this, and I said this, and next time I'm going to say that. Oh, this is what I'm going to write. And, um, you know, all the justifying and defending and uh, attacking without, you know, putting some other cover on what it was, but really just wanting to attack. And maybe it's subtle, but it's still there in the mind. And so I was, went to the teacher and I said, ah, what to do, what to do? And he said, the moment that the thinking arises, just let it go. Well, that's so hard. And I said, comes up a lot in the walking. And he said, when, when walking is happening and a lot of thinking is happening, I was surprised to hear this from Upandita, the Sayadaw in Burma. He said, just with every step, let it go in the ground, as if it's just that fire in the ground. And so I thought, oh, okay. Just because he said it, it worked, I guess, because, you know, I hadn't tried anything else. So just the ability to just let it go, just like that, because I knew it felt like a fire in my heart. It was burning me up. So, of course, the Buddha's antidote to anger, to fear, all these aspects of kind of um, this aversion is loving-kindness. So some, some of the first uh, thoughts you may have, which would be the right thought, would be to do loving-kindness for yourself when aversion is there. Bring metta, right, to that place of aversion in your own heart, to that fire in your heart, in your mind. And it's interesting that metta is described as a gentle rain, a gentle rain that falls on everything. It's a cooling, a cooling rain that falls on everything without discrimination, uh, without exclusion. It's all inclusive. It's said in that way. But I'm uh, noticing in, in this regard about the gentle rain, the fire element coming together, uh, the, the water element coming together with the fire element. Water in this case is stronger than the fire. It'll put the fire out. So the gentle rain, the water element of metta, putting the fieriness of aversion, of ill will, out. Bring the gentleness to your own heart there, the cooling rain of metta. Um, There was also, this comes in the 
uh, understanding of where this leads to, where anger leads to, or where brooding over something that happened to us leads to. So in doing metta practice, I remembered an incident once. Um, Of course, we're all so sensitive when we do metta practice, so we're going to remember incidences in our life, present and past, and worry for future incidences. And I just want to say it's natural and not to think something's wrong if it happens. But this verse of the Dhammapada always comes to mind when I feel like I'm taking, you know, I'm just feeding it, I'm fueling it. This is um, the words of the Buddha. He insulted me, he hit me, she beat me, she robbed me. For those who brood on this, hostility is instilled. She insulted me, he hit me, he beat me, he robbed me. For those who don't brood on this, hostility is stilled. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone does hatred cease. This is the unending and ancient law. And this is a deep truth that we can all touch into. We all of us know this by just um, bringing another moment of pushing away of resistance or brooding on what had happened in the past, you know, with more mechanisms that bring us towards uh, unwholesome states of mind. This doesn't help. So the phrase, when you come back to yourself, could be, may I be safe from inner harm? Because we know that harm, that inner harm of hostility is there. Or it could be, may I care for myself no matter what's happening? Even when we're remembering this, can we still bring metta to ourselves? So change the phrase so it helps us to kind of feel that the mind is cooled out more. And of course, leave that person to the side. If you're um, feeling aversion with that person you've brought up, leave that person to the side. Just kind of gently bow and just say later, maybe, you know, maybe... It might be much later that you bring that person up, but it could be in the you know, difficult person category. So, of course, if it becomes overwhelming, then shift to vipassana. And more often with uh, anger or with aversion, with this uh, hindrance, you have to shift to vipassana. So do that, shifting to vipassana, bear attention, recognizing, relaxing, and then realizing it's If you can, go to that wisdom place in you. Realize this is just an impermanent, another impermanent visitor to the mind and heart. So right here, I want to say that the biggest antidote for all of this, for any of this, is patience. It's a a huge help and relief when we can just remember to be patient with ourselves and our practice. One of the other classical hindrances, uh, doubt, uh, speak of a little bit, is another one that um, stops us on our tracks. It kind of makes us feel we can't go on. So it manifests as confusion, indecision, 
you know, the kind of simple indecision of what phrase should I use? Or how many of you are still there? What phrase shall I use? It helps me to know. Oh, you mostly have your phrases. Good. Um, Or should I walk or should I sit? You know, or um, should I take the, the eight precepts or not? You know, those kind of momentary doubts can come up, and we can see them as just doubt. Don't give them too much energy. Just see them as doubt. Um, If you can recognize it right away, then leave it in the background. Don't try to work it out intellectually or anything. Uh, Sometimes it's the doubt of, maybe I shouldn't be doing this practice. You know, maybe I should go back to Vipassana. If you have those kinds of doubts, it's really helpful to clarify it with your teacher. And getting clear is the antidote to doubt when it's big questions like that. Um, So don't hesitate to ask those questions. Usually, doubt comes up because of kind of a weakness of connecting and sustaining with the practice. That's uh, like, as I've been told, um, it's feeble. You know, your practice is feeble because you're not connecting and sustaining with the practice. And that's when doubt arises. So just no doubt is doubt, again, without getting into the details of it. Otherwise, it can really stop you in your tracks. We had a lot of sloth and torpor yesterday and today, and that was really understandable. There's a lot of heat. We're coming from... Uh, very busy lives, and of course it feels like we come here and we're just stopping on a dime after going, you know, whatever it is, a hundred miles an hour or less or more. And so we, we could feel oh, our tiredness a lot more than usual. So just know that it's, it's natural for us to feel this. We, we can get into a, a quiet place, um, a place where there's some stillness. And then, of course, we close our eyes. And naturally, we feel sleepy. It's just what naturally happens. So as we go along, especially tomorrow, tomorrow's more of a, the energy's building, so we'll uh, usually feel less sloth and torpor. Um, there are a few ways that you can work with it in metta practice, and Sometimes, uh, for some of you, it works to speed up your, your phrases. Uh, some, for some of you, you may not even have the energy to speed them up, as I've heard today. Um, but it's helpful, if you can, to speed them up. Sometimes with the metta phrases, I have to, in my own mind, kind of shout. You know, It's as if I'm saying it louder in my mind, in my heart. May you be happy! You know, just really as if I'm talking to them across a lake. And I really need to bring up the energy and, you know, let the energy get out there a little more. Walking fast with the metta, like taking a fast walk up and down the hill while doing your metta practice, keep the continuity going, can really, really help. Um, Of course, opening your eyes can help while you're doing the practice. And uh, sometimes it, it helps to, in, the, in this um, commentaries, it says, pull your earlobes. And I don't know, that might have something to do with acupuncture points, my acupuncturist told me, 
to pull your earlobes, but look at the Buddha's ears. They're pretty long, um, so we don't have to feel so bad about that. (laughs) Pull your earlobes, stand up. I can assure you that if you stand up, you will probably not fall. I have only heard of two people that have fallen down standing up and doing practice. And they woke everybody up around them. <laughs> so, so you might be doing people a favor, but uh, might hurt people too. So stand up. Don't hesitate to stand up. We had, I know there are some of you out there waiting for us to say, you can stand up so that you can stand up and you know it feels comfortable. So keep the continuity of the energy going. Um, if you need to, make your meta object more interesting. Um, as the teachers have been saying, maybe picture them in a place where it's more interesting for you to see them. And maybe in your kitchen, you know, having a cup of tea or a cup of coffee with you. Or uh, maybe walking on a path or um, at the beach. Um, or uh, I, I would, when I did metta practice for two, I did intensive two-month metta practice one time. And it was really hard to stay interested in the, in the metta uh, object. You know, I was told I had to use one person for two months, except for the last three days. And then I, I went towards the others. So I really had to get interested in that person. So I dressed that person up in different <laughs> outfits in different hats, and um, because I loved, at that time I really loved hats, but that's gone away. And I dressed them up, you know, like um, in a kimono, in a, (laughs) like Scarlett O'Hara, there was one time, um, in a Hawaiian dress, you know, it it just made me like more interested, what what shall I do today, kind of thing. So just get interested in what you're doing in the practice. Make it unboring for you. That can help with sloth and torpor. So then, of course, if you need to, go to Vipassana, as I said before, and bear attention on the, you know, the moment-to-moment experience of sloth and torpor. You'd be surprised how you can just wake up all of a sudden by being really mindful of sloth and torpor. So, the last is restlessness. That can be due to pain in the body, which we usually have in retreat. So this is very normal in the first days. Or um, there might be too much energy in the body for who knows what reason. Or there might be resistance to um, an unwholesome mind state that's coming up. Resistance to what's coming up can also cause restlessness. Um, So just know that all of these things can be a cause of restlessness to happen. The same antidotes uh, for restlessness uh, apply that apply for sloth and torpor. Keep a continuity of attention, of sustained attention on your your metta practice and see if that helps. Uh, Make it interesting so that your mind can just keep the restlessness in the background and keep your metta in the foreground. Stay with the metta. Stand up with restlessness. It's good to stand up. It's good to open your eyes because it makes your field bigger. 
And when the field is bigger around restlessness, it can calm the mind down a little more. Spaciousness helps. You can walk briskly, the same antidote to sloth and torpor. Walk briskly. Um, Also, to both of these, uh, sloth and torpor and restlessness, it really helps to do the qigong practice that we have here because it really can balance out the energy wherever it is for you. It can bring it up or can balance it so it's more calming. And so this is attend the practices, which most of you are anyway. So then if you need to, of course, go to Vipassana. Again, repetition in the Dharma is like part of our um, practice to understand by, by recognizing over and over again, by relaxing, by realizing the impermanent nature of the moment. It will help us to just get back to our practice. It's pretty straightforward. So all of these, with all of these, we incline towards uh, metta. We try to incline back towards metta if we can. And we can make the choice to not feed that tendency. We, we have that in our power to not feed the tendency of these uh, states of mind or states of the body which are not onward leading which we get trapped in, which lead us to confusion and unkindness. Um, We need to, we can be willing to know what's there and open to it and um, be with it with a kind of kindness, compassion. We can know as a beautiful poet that uh, I was introduced to, by my colleague and friend, James, Dana Falls. And this is perfect for this, um, these hindrances to metta. And she calls this poem, Choosing Life. I'd like to end with that. The downward spiral starts. Self-doubt and darkness vie for center stage, while I, the passive drowning one, wait for my demise. Just as I sink beneath the wave of despair, a thought arises. Why go there? I've made this trip a thousand times, and it leads nowhere. I'm choosing life. The darkness lifts just a little. I'm choosing life. The downward spiral slows, then stops. I'm lifted up and buoyant now, not shrinking from the truth. Okay, I'm not perfect, and reality certainly doesn't look like what I choose. And maybe that's the only point, to ride the spirals down and up and make the choice for life. So thank you for making the choice for metta. It's a noble cause for your life. So let's sit for a few moments and let the words dissolve.
time for your metta walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.